So if you have a Bible, open it to Philippians. We are going to continue our series this morning, and we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. But before we get there, let's see if I find my slides. Make sure they work. Before we get there, uh, so uh, just to talk about, hang on, nobody look. Everybody close your eyes. I'm going to work backwards. Oh my goodness, you just, you're seeing an entire, there we go, okay. All right, we're going to get past that. I want to talk for a second about kids because why not, right? Um, one of the funny things about having kids, if you know anything about kids, is that is it important to classify them. Uh, much like any species, um, it is important to divide them and to classify them so that we can better understand them and we can take care of them. We can understand their needs, what they eat, and their behavior. We could try to understand their behavior. And one of the ways that is, I've found, very valuable in classifying kids, especially if they're younger, is by putting them in one of two groups. One group is runners, and the other group is non-runners. And what I mean by this is if you have a kid or have ever had a kid or have ever had to deal with a kid who is a runner, usually you've been told that or warned that or you've told other people about it. By the way, he's a runner. By the way, she's a runner, okay? Uh, my son is not a runner. He's like, I'm, I better be able to see you at all times. Uh, but my daughter is a runner, and she always has been. In the beginning, it was more of an escaping thing. It was just like, like a dog running out the front door when you leave it open. Like, the door's open, I'm gone. And like way down in front of the neighbor's house before you even knew where she was going. I mean, like really, really fast. Now it's more just, it's less about escaping, I think. And now it's more just about like, uh, getting excited about something and taking off and not re realizing that like maybe no one's behind you and that you're going to turn around and then be lost. So we often have conversations that involve us like looking in the eye and saying, we don't run away. We don't run away. We don't run away, right? And our daughter says, I'm sorry. Okay, I won't run away. I, I got excited. We don't run away. We don't run away. This has become a rule in our house. This has become kind of one of our household rules. This has become one of our family rules is we don't run away. If you were to make a sign on our house that says the household rules, the first one would say we don't run away, which probably wouldn't look very good if like the first family rule that you had was we don't run away, right? Somebody might think, what's this home life like, right? But sadly, that's what it's like in my house, I guess, is that everybody wants to run away, or at least half of my kids want to run away. Uh, every family has these rules. Every family has this stuff. If you grew up in a family, you know what, that's, what those rules were. You, you don't need anyone to remind you the rules of your house, right? Here are the things we do. Here are the things we don't do. And sometimes they're pretty unconventional. Sometimes they have to do with, like, politeness and learning manners and learning appropriateness socially. Um, much of the time, it's... It's just like stop doing the things you're doing and you won't stop doing it. And so now there's a rule about it. And that rule might not make total sense if you don't know the rules of our house, right? I mean, we have like a lot of sort of household rules. My, my friend, when I was, I went to my friend's house in high school and I had dinner uh, with his family. His mom had a rule. It's very simple. Uh, one hand in the lap all the time when you're eating. So like you're eating and your other hand goes in your lap with your napkin and that's how you eat. And if you put your hand on the table, she stabbed it with a fork. And... <laughs> It worked. They all, like four boys, just very, 
very nicely always kept their hand in their lap. And I had to learn the hard way as like a sophomore in high school when I had dinner at my friend's house because they were having stovetop or something and she stabbed my hand with a fork and I learned very quickly, put your hand on your lap, don't put it on the table. Uh, my kids, our rules are things like don't you know, be mean to the dog uh, because we love him and we want him to be a part of our family still. And, you know, rules dictating when you wear clothes and rules dictating not hitting in the face. That's specifically something you can't do. What do you do when your brother or sister gets hurt, right? You don't just stand there while they're crying or immediately start denying that you had anything to do with it. Maybe, you could, maybe we could help them. Maybe we could be that kind of family where we help somebody when they're hurt and crying. Um, rules like don't wake up mom. That's a big one. Just don't wake her up. You know the rule, right? Uh, and uh, I'm not saying never, she's not sleeping all the time, but I'm saying, you know, when she's sleeping, <laughs> let's let her sleep, right? Um, and uh, and uh, probably one of the most important rules in our house uh, with our kids is flush the toilet because apparently that's a rule that needs to be repeated again and again and again, and it never gets followed. So this is like a big part of being in any family, being in any home. You all remember what they were when you were growing up, and some of you were trying to instill them in others, and you have had varying degrees of success. But any time that you live with a group of people, you've got to have some shared values. Now, the funny thing is that the rules don't always, the family rules don't always shape who we are. Uh, what really shapes who we are is the values that our families exhibit, the way that they live, the things that matter most to them. This is something that I've, it's been very interesting to me looking back on my own childhood and, and thinking about the way that families operate and the way that, that we are. It's not the rules that really teach us um, what to do and who to be. It is the values. It's, it's the things that mattered the most to my parents are more likely to matter more to me because they showed me what was most valuable. The other thing that, that transfers over is your family does help you have a better sense of who you are, yourself. You learn a sense of self from your family. I'm saying all this because Paul is writing this letter to the Philippian church, this church that he loves. He refers to them as my beloved. He really loves this church. He's proud of this church. They're doing really well as a church. And in the passage that we're in this morning, what he's going to do is he's going to lay out for them the way that he wants them to kind of live and operate amongst each other. We already started talking about some of this last week when it comes to the idea of unity and being humble and putting others before yourself. And for many of you, you're like, that's a big rule in my household is the idea of putting others before yourself. But Paul's going to go a lot further than that in this. And what he's going to do is he's going to tell the church how they ought to be and who they are. Much of the way that Jesus teaches us himself is that he tells us simply who we really are. And then as we are changed by knowing that, we live differently. It's not just about trying to follow rules. It's about actually knowing that you're someone different than you thought you were before. And so what we're going to do as we work through this this morning is we're going we're gonna to hit on like we are these things. These are the things that we are, according to Paul, that, that, that the church is, that believers, followers of Jesus are. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, then this is a little bit being on the outside looking in because you're getting kind of a family meeting. You're getting kind of a view of a family talking about how are we going to live? What are we going to do? Um, but don't make the mistake of thinking that just by following a bunch of rules that you're necessarily a part of the group. Not to say that you're not welcome to be a part of the group, but there's something much more important than just rule following. And we'll get to that eventually because Paul will talk about what it means to even be a part of the family, how you sort of get in. So the first couple of verses, starting in verse 12, say this. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul says here that his beloved church, his his loved church, they are to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. They are to work out their salvation with fear and with trembling. This language that Paul's using here, there's a Greek word for work out. It's kind of a ridiculous sounding word, I'll say it. It's ketergazomai. You know, it sounds pretty Greek. I could have made that up, by the way. I could make all those up. You guys wouldn't know. Most of you wouldn't know. But it's not made up, I promise. It just sounds a little bit more made up than usual. And that word, that Greek word means to be refined by constant use. It's the idea of using something and working with something, with some materials so much that you refine them and turn them into something else, turn it into something else. It's the idea of like tilling soil and working the land. It's, it's where we get the concept of produce being something that we produce, that, that, you, that you do effort, that you work, and it produces something different, and it comes as a result of this working out. Uh, it would be like if you were to see a tomato, and you were like, I want to make one of these. How would I do that? Well, I don't start just with a tomato. I say, I'm going to start with the soil, and I'm going to work it, and I'm going to get it ready, and then I'm going to plant seeds, and then I'm going to continue to work the soil, and I'm going to water it, and I'm going to make sure that it has ideal conditions, and as I work this again and again and again, hopefully I get to a point where this plant grows, and what it ultimately produces is a tomato. Now, the reason we, we, I use that example is because when we talk about working out our faith, we obviously have to be careful because you don't become a Christian by working really hard. Uh, what happens when a person becomes a Christian is they say that Jesus now stands in my place. And so when God looks at me, he sees Jesus, not me. Because I have given my, I have put my faith in him, not in my own efforts, not in the things I do, not in my background, not in my skills, not in my knowledge or self-discipline. I've put it in Jesus. And so because of that, When God looks at me, he sees Jesus. But what I also get in Jesus is I get a picture of who I could be like. And so I say, while God sees him in my place, it's not how good I am, I also go, I want to be like him. And so I see in Jesus something that I want to turn into, to be more like. And so I can maybe live my life in a way that, that brings me closer to that. It's the idea of working out your faith is growing. It's progressing, right? It's this idea that tomorrow I could be more like Jesus than I was yesterday, that that's possible, that I could let go of sin, that I could turn over more of myself to God. And in doing so, through being sanctified, I can be growing, And that this process is one, according to Paul, that should always be happening. And so the first, like, family rule, the first value here is this. We are always growing. We are always growing. There is no season of life. There is no stage of life. There is no time. There is no age. There is no set of circumstances that say, right now it's okay. I'm not, I don't need to grow. We are always growing. We are working out our faith. Now, that's Paul saying to the church, he's saying, I love you guys. I'm proud of you guys. You guys are great, but keep going. He's not saying, you're a terrible church. You need to clean up your act, so fix yourselves, and then you'll be fine. You can stop working out your faith. He's, he's telling this to somebody who's doing well already. So we know that it's something that we're supposed to continually be doing again and again. 
Now, that's hard for many. If, you've, if you're a follower of Jesus and you follow Jesus for a while, you go, yeah, but, you know, I kind of got to a point where it was like life got cleaned up. I got on track. I actually have a lot of people now that look at me and say, like, hey, you're doing great. Hey, you're doing well. Hey, I'm impressed with you. Hey, you're a really good example of Jesus or something. And so, you know, I I'm probably don't need to really work out my faith quite maybe like I used to. I, I could probably rest a little bit in where I'm at now, and I don't need to really worry about growing through what I'm going through right now, whether it's good or bad. Maybe I could take a break because life is easy. Maybe I can take a break because life is really hard. But there isn't a point that we get to where we don't struggle with the flesh in this life. There's not a point that we get to where we don't need and we can't continually be growing. It actually gets more complicated the longer sometimes that you're following Jesus because you gain all this knowledge, you gain all this information, and then that can make it even harder to know what growing looks like. One of my favorite authors is a pastor named Richard Baxter, and he, and he wrote um, he wrote in 400 years ago, he, he wrote a book to other pastors kind of giving advice on how to do ministry, and it's surprisingly relevant today. Um, in Puritanical England, he wrote this book on how to be a pastor, and one of the things that he says that pastors have to watch out for, and I think it applies to a lot of people who have been following Jesus for a while and struggle to see how they need to always be growing. I love this quote partly because it's got my favorite word in it. He says, you are more likely than others to sin against knowledge because you have more than they. Your sins have more hypocrisy in them than other means by how much more you have spoken against them. Your sins have more perfidiousness in them, which is deception, by how much more you have engaged yourself against them. He says, you have all this knowledge, and so your sin is a sin against knowledge. You know the right things, but you'll still struggle to do the right things. He says, you have more hypocrisy because you've probably told people not to do these things, and yet you'll struggle to do these things. And they have more deception in them because you have engaged yourself publicly saying, we're against these things. And so when you struggle with them yourself, you'll be tempted to be deceptive and to hide these things. I don't think this is only true of pastors. I think this is true for many of us who seek to follow Jesus and be growing and recognize that it actually gets even more challenging to be working out our faith the longer that we follow Jesus for these reasons. But we are continually growing. Now, what does it mean to be working out our faith, right? What is that? That's, so that's like, what? That's everything Jesus said to do? I just have to be like him in every way? I have to try and do everything he did? I mean, what is that, like a list of 150 rules that I have to follow and I have to work on? And every year I'll try to check another one off the list. I'll try to get better at the fruit of the Spirit and the Great Commission and all these different things. What does that mean? Uh, the idea of growing in faith continually is kind of a big idea. It's kind of a scary, overwhelming idea. Jesus did a really good job of making it very easy when they asked him in the Gospels, what must a person do? How should a person live? He made it super simple. Two things. He said, love God and love others. And when he talked about loving God specifically, he said four ways that we love God. And this really is the comprehensive way that we are continually trying to work out our faith in fear and trembling. He says, as we're always growing, he says in Luke 10 that we are to love God with all of our, our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. All of us. And he does a really good job of breaking you and me down into some pretty big categories. Love your God with all your heart. What does that mean? 
The heart is the center of your being. It's who you are. It's what your identity is in. Loving God with all of your heart means that even though you're constantly tempted to live for and be about other things, to give your heart to other things, you instead give your heart to God. And life is constantly filled with the temptation to give it to other things, to say, who am I? What am I about in my core? What is my life about right now? If I look at myself and I ask myself that question, I say, who am I? What am I living for? What am I about? I say, well, I'm a, well, I'm a, I'm a husband. I'm a friend. I'm a dad. I'm a pastor. I'm an American. I'm a good person. I'm a hard worker. Maybe I want to be a smart person. You might say different things from this. Hopefully you would if you're not me. You would say, you know, I'm a mother. I'm a, I'm a grandmother. I'm a spouse. You look at these things and you say, uh, these are all things that I can say are the core of who I am, of what I'm living for, of what I'm about. But loving God with all of our heart means that even though through every season of life and every stage of life and every set of circumstances, we will be tempted to give our heart over to other things and say, that's what I'm living for. It, it will keep being a temptation. That's what I'm living for. That's what I'm about. It never goes away on this side of heaven. We say, how then can I love God with all my heart instead of being just about loving this thing? It's hard because people tell me I'm good at these things and they like these things. Other people live for these things. But when I can love God with my heart and not these things, then that means that these things are like bonuses. I don't need them for life. We talked about that before. To live as Christ means I don't need these things to live, which means now these things are like an added bonus for me. To love God with all your mind is to quite literally love God with your, with your thoughts and your ability to reason and understand, to turn over your mind to him. I love what 1 Peter says about this when it talks about thinking clearly. It says to be sober-minded, which means free of outside influence. It means you're not influenced by anything, and so you're able to see clearly the truth of God. And much of, much of confusion that we deal with in life as we live our lives and try to follow Jesus is not being sober-minded, but instead letting other things influence and, and affect the way that we see things. And, and no matter, So you could open up a Bible and read it every day. You could go to church every day. You could talk to Christians every day. You could try to serve Jesus. But if your mind is given over to other things, then that whole process could be distorted. And there's a couple of ways that this happens. One is something called ideologies. Ideologies are ways of thinking that we devote ourselves to that control our minds. They control the way that we think and see the world. We say, I have to see everything this way. Get ready for an exciting definition of the word ideology. An ideology is a system of ideas and ideals, especially one that forms the basis of economic or political theory and policy. It's the ideas and manner of thinking characteristic of thinking characteristic of a group, social class, or individual. Ideologies are the way groups of people think. 
They often have to do with government, with politics. They have to do with worldviews. They have to do with certain values that we've decided that we'll raise up above other things and say this has to be a priority over these things. And that ideology, as ideologies tend to do, is they say this is what's right and this is what's wrong. This is what's true and this is what's false. But they also say this is who's right and who's wrong. They say this is who's valuable and who's not. They say this is who helps us in the world and who doesn't help us in the world. And when we allow ourselves, our minds, to be controlled, first and foremost, let's say, by an ideology, then everything we hear, we filter through that thing. And it, and it affects our way to see clearly to turn over all of our mind to God. Ideologies usually take a thing and they turn it to the thing. They often lead to an adversarial view of the world because any ideology has an opposing ideology. And so it often leads to enemies and people that we want to be away from or that we want to avoid or that we want to protect the world from. An ideology creates rules and boundaries. It's like a circle, and it says, don't go outside of this. And if you do, or if anyone's even leading you to, or if you think this is a way to know that you might be tempted to, then the red flags go up and the, the, the lights start to flash and we say, hold on a second, I can't, I can't go outside the bounds of the ideology. Now, the problem with the circle, the problem with ideologies is you may have noticed this if you ever have read the teachings of Jesus or some of these things that Paul's even talking about or what we read about in the Old Testament, which is um, he's going outside of ideologies all the time. He's constantly telling people to do things that don't fit in any one of those. Look at the parable of the Good Samaritan which is a parable about a person who is beaten and left by the roadside to die. And who ends up helping them and who hurts them? Who avoids them? The religious leaders, the Levites, the people that, that don't want to go near because their rules about cleanliness and purity and who's good and who's bad keep them away from helping. And yet the person who ultimately helps is the Samaritan, the person that we look down on, that we say, according to the way we understand the world and society, the Samaritans are bad people, right? What about... What about and that entire, uh, that entire parable is in part to show us exactly how we're supposed to love our neighbor, not allowing it to be dictated by an ideology, right? Uh, Peter, who's given his life to the gospel, preaching the gospel, has to get called out by his friends because he's eating with all the Jews and none of the Gentiles. And they're like, come on, Peter, you can't show favorites. We all know you're showing favorites. We know you like these guys over these guys. You gotta spread it around a little bit. You gotta be fair. And he's like, yeah, but they're a little bit cleaner. They have a little bit better rules and they're a little bit closer to God. And I would just think that God would probably want me to start there first. And then even Peter, someone who's devoted his life to this thing, has this way of valuing people and thinking. His mind needs to continually be transformed. He needs to be working out his faith which he does, he continues to do. We believe ideologies that control, but we also believe lies that distort the way that we think. We look in the mirror and we believe, well, we believe lies about the world, such as uh, the problem is you, the problem is out there, the problem is a group of people, the problem is a way of doing things, the problem is that things aren't the way they used to be, or we believe lies about ourselves. We look in the mirror and we, we, we quite literally believe things about ourselves that are not true. And we have these, uh, these sort of uh, narratives that go through our minds, these scripts that go through our minds every day, constantly. You are dumb. You are ugly. You are fat. You are too skinny. You are weak. 
No one likes you. You need to prove yourself if you want anyone to take you seriously or if you ever hope to take yourself seriously. You need to be in control of things a lot more than you are now. You are worthless. You should be afraid. You are stupid. You are broken. You can read the Bible and you can go to church all day. But if this is the stuff that you're telling yourself and that you're listening to in your mind constantly, then how can your mind fully grasp and comprehend the truth of what we read about in the Bible, of what, of what Jesus tells us? Even the songs that we sing as we worship are oftentimes directly in opposition to the lies that we tell ourselves and that we believe. And the, one of the reasons why it's so beneficial to worship, apart from just praising God for who he is because he deserves our worship, is the repetition of saying these things that are true that we often struggle to believe. We love God with all of our strength, what you're physically capable of doing. If it was easy to love God with all of our strength, then all of the physically strongest people on earth would be on fire for Jesus. All of professional athletes would be on fire for Jesus. All Olympians would be on fire for Jesus. All of the most brilliant intellectuals and academics would be on fire for Jesus. If it transferred over, that simply. But it doesn't transfer over that way. We are prone to sometimes be very good at self-discipline and working hard and accomplishing things through sheer strength and determination, leaving very little room and time and effort and just willpower and energy and strength for God himself. We can do some incredibly disciplined things. We can deny ourselves in some incredibly big ways. And at the end of the day, just kind of be like, I don't have any more steam for this, energy for this. To love God with all of our soul Your soul is the inner self. It is the inner deepest part of who you are. It's the hidden part for many of us. And one of the hardest things about loving God with all of our soul for many of us is just digging it out of storage and blowing the dust off of it and saying, what's the deal with you? Because for many of us, introspection and what's going on and motivating and shaping things about who we are and our identity and all this stuff, uh, this is not something that we really want to deal much with. When I think about the soul and loving God with all your soul, I don't know why I think about this, but I think about, and I apologize, teenagers, I'm not picking on you, but you could probably agree with me that this is how you feel sometimes. I think about a teenager on a family vacation. I think about when I was a teenager and my parents dragged me places and I was like, listen, I don't care about that waterfall I don't care. I don't care about what's at the top of this path because I don't want to walk up this path. I don't really care how they got here on a wagon and where it ended and why that's supposed to matter so much to me. That is not fun for me, and I don't want to do it. I have kids that still get really excited when we do anything on vacation. They get excited, and I'm realizing, I'm remembering that like when I was a teenager and an adolescent, I didn't want to do any of the stuff my parents wanted to do on vacation. And I'm like, man, I'm going to miss these days where my kids get excited to do all the stuff that we try to do with them on vacation. Because there's going to be a point when it's like, please don't 
drag me out of here and make me do this thing. When we talk about loving God with all of your soul, for many of us, that process is like dragging somebody out, kicking and screaming and saying, come on, this will be fun, I promise. Come on, it'll be worth it, I promise. Come on, it'll be good. You'll be glad you did it. You'll be glad you tried in the end. And we're like, it is way easier to just stay in there and just sit down and do whatever it is that we're doing and we want to do. No matter what is going on, no matter what we are going through, no matter how ideal and perfect and comfortable life seems to be right now, or no matter how difficult and painful and chaotic life may be, Paul says, work out your faith. We are always growing. But he also says to work out our faith in fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he says. With fear and trembling. Aren't we not supposed to be doing things out of fear? Aren't we not supposed to be motivated by fear? Isn't that a bad thing? Well, there's different kinds of fear. And this fear is awe. This is what happens to a person when they're confronted with something that is so big, so powerful, that all you can really do is recognize it with awe and tremble and shake. You see, the reason why Paul says that we are to work out our faith with fear and trembling is because this working out of our faith isn't about having a New Year's resolution and deciding I'm going to be a better person this year than I was last year. Or, man, my life is a mess and I need to clean up my act. Or, man, your life is a mess. You need to work out your faith and figure it out and then you'll be fine and you can coast like I am. It's because growing, working out your faith is the difference between life and death. It's the difference between being connected to life, which is God. Life is found in God, in being like Christ. Or we experience death. It is that big of a deal. And so we do it knowing that we are completely dependent on God for life. We are hopelessly dependent. We are hopelessly dependent on who he is. So much so that for us to be without him is scary. I think of fear and trembling this way. If you've ever been underwater for a really long time and you're swimming to the surface to get air, that feeling you get as you're ascending and you're about to break through the surface of the water is fear and trembling. The fear, what if I don't get there? What if I don't get the air that I need? What if I don't find life? You're actually trembling much of the time. It's weird how that works. You go underwater, you don't think about air right away. You take a little bit of time, you start to think about it. Oh, yeah, I got to go back up there at some point. But, you know, your body will tell you, and you'll know that you need it. And that feeling of needing life, and then the fear of what happens without it, is the kind of fear and trembling that he's talking about here. In fact, I think a lot of, uh, of, of pursuing Jesus is like that. It's like being underwater but needing air. You go down, and you're down there for a while, but you constantly need to come back. If you don't, you'll die. Why? Because you need air. You need it to breathe and to live and to thrive constantly. Our life is found in God himself. And so we work out our faith 
but we do it knowing how dependent we are on who God is for every step of the way. He goes on and he says, for it is God who works in you for both will and pleasure. And so he's saying, and this is really important for us, this isn't about how hard of a worker you are, all the creative things you can do, or all the self-discipline that you can have, because God's the one that's going to ultimately make this happen anyway. You're going to grow through his power and through him. The Holy Spirit's going to make this happen. And to think that we can just be, try hard enough to work out our faith and that we won't be dependent upon him for life is basically plagiarism. And there's a lot of people who are committing this kind of plagiarism, who have like cleaned their lives up enough to look a certain way and then really proudfully take the credit for, proudly take the credit for who they are and the way that they live. This is like if somebody came over to your house and you're eating a salad and, uh, and they go, this is a great salad. And you go, let me show you something. This is, this is incredible. Don't tell anybody this is kind of a secret. I figured out how to grow this in my backyard. Come here, come here. Bring me your backyard. Look, look at this. I, I, I figured out that if you, that if, that if I put like parts of these plants in the ground, and it only really happens in the rainy season, but, but then I think it's the rain or something. And then I'm not sure if daytime is when it grows or nighttime. I don't know because there's kind of equal of both, but it grows. And then I have all of this food, and I have figured out a way to grow this myself so I don't have to go to the store anymore and buy it. Can you believe that? Can I, can I, do you think I can like market this? Do you think that I could, I, could, I could get other people to do this? Is there a way to trademark it? Do you know anything about the laws of that? In the meantime, don't tell anybody it's a secret. They would hopefully look at you like you're totally insane because you are totally insane. And it'd be like, yeah, you didn't figure that out. Uh, and also, you're not actually doing any of that, you know? You're actually kind of doing a mediocre job of it with what you're describing. Because the truth is, we can grow all the stuff that we want, but we don't make the soil the way it is, and we don't make the seed grow. We don't bring, we can bring the water, but we, it's very hard for us to bring the sunlight. You see, God has this way of growing this stuff. And we partner in that, and we do it, we participate but it's not us that's doing it. And we're not the ones that invented it, and we're not the ones that get credit for it. Paul says, you and God are together in this. He is working in you for both will and pleasure, giving you even the desire to do this thing. Paul goes on, and he says this to the church, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do all things, he says, without grumbling and disputing, or disputing. This word grumbling, uh, we read about it back when we were in Exodus a few months back. It's the Greek word used in the Greek version of the Old Testament for grumbling. It's a community word. It's a word that describes something that happens amongst a group of people, and it's an audible sound that you hear. Grumbling isn't actions, it's not decisions, um, it's not thoughts, it's not feelings. Grumbling is talking. And it's a bunch of people kind of grumbling and murmuring together. It's like a background noise, it's like a white noise that happens in the background of God's people. Now, I think that it's sadly true that in many churches and many groups of believers gathered together, there is the white noise in the background of grumbling. 
of disputing and complaining. You see, we often think in church that, uh, that the actions that we take are the biggest deal, that they're the ones, they're the things that cause damage. So as long as we don't maybe act a certain way, then it'll be fine. It's just the things that we do. We think if I stop coming, if I stop giving, if I stop investing in these people or giving anything of myself to them in a relationship, if I step down from the position or if I choose to no longer serve in this place, then that's a big deal. And so then we go, I'll stay. I'll keep doing what I'm doing. I'll just grumble. I'll just complain. It doesn't cause that much harm and, you know, I'm here and I'm doing what I'm doing and so it's okay. And so we stay. You say, I'll stay in my small group, but I'll just complain to some of my friends afterwards. I'll gossip to them every week about, you know, how it's going and how I feel about them, you know, or whatever. I'll keep coming to church, but I'll grumble. I'll grumble to all the people I know who won't make me do anything about it, but I'll grumble and, and, and you know, but I'm here. I'll keep giving to the church, but I'll make sure people know I'm not happy about what my money's going to. I'm like, well, I wouldn't spend it that way, and that's fine. That's, you know, I get it. Okay, whatever. But, but you know, just let people know what I think. I'll keep serving in my ministry, but I'm going to grumble about how it should be done. I'm going to let some people know what I think. Let some of my friends know what I think. I'll grumble because grumbling and complaining accomplish so much. They fix things and they help things and they move us forward as a group of people. And so I'll, I'll keep doing what I'm doing, but I'll just grumble and I'll complain and we'll dispute, right? No. What Paul's saying to this church that he loves is he's saying, please, whatever you do, don't grumble and dispute amongst yourselves because that is where the damage happens. It is when you think that your words won't do anything, that they won't spread like, almost like, like poison, that the damage begins to really happen. Grumbling is one-sided. Then there's the two-sided stuff that's disputing. The other word he uses, disputing is to argue about differences of opinion. That doesn't happen a lot, right? Arguing about differences of opinion. Anytime you get a group of people together, you're going to argue about differences of opinion. And he says not to do that either. And what do these two things have in common that make them so contrary to unity and, and family? Is this. They're all about talking and not listening. They're all about defending yourself and not understanding someone else. They're all about believing that you're already right and they can't possibly be. If you know anything about marriage and how to communicate in marriage, you will only get so far if in every disagreement you think, all I have to do is get them to understand how I feel then or what I think or how I'm seeing it. If they could only understand me and what I'm saying and how right I am, then we'll be fine. In reality, the moment we begin to say, how can I understand them, everything changes. The moment that we ask and that we listen and we try to understand, everything changes. 
This is why grumbling and disputing are toxic. It's because it's just a group of people saying, I'm right. And someone needs to understand why. It's so easy to lose perspective, to think that there's not an enemy who's seeking to devour us, to divide us. To let our grumbling and disputes lead to differences and division. And so then what do we do, though? I mean, I'm an opinionated guy. I care a lot about, you know, what's right. And so I read this and I go, so what, am I, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do, Paul? Like when we, are we supposed to not care about anything? Are we supposed to just like ignore everything? What do we do? It's actually pretty simple. If you're upset, if you're frustrated, if you're unhappy, if you're discouraged, if you're angry, if you're hurt, if you're feeling ignored, if you're feeling marginalized, let's start here. There's two things that you can't do. You can't grumble and you can't dispute. That's it. He's saying, whatever you do, don't do those two things because those won't fix anything. They'll make everything worse. So that's where we start. And when we start there, it can actually get pretty difficult. And we can be like, wow, okay, this is a lot harder than I thought it was. Really a lot harder than I thought it was. And why do we... And so we are strangely peaceful. We're unusually peaceful. Because he says that we're going to shine like stars. We're going to stand out. We're going to be so distinct that it's strange that these people are getting along so well, even though they all have these passions and convictions and actually care about things and think about things. We will be strangely peaceful. We will not grumble and we will not dispute with one another. One of the reasons why this is so valuable is because you may not know this, but people in the church are sinful. We sin, we blow it. And we read in 1 Peter a very good rule for how to deal with that. And he says this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. He says, So hospitality to one another without grumbling. Do you know what love does? Is it covers a multitude of sins. Jesus' love covered a multitude of our sins. But what's he saying here in 1 Peter? He's saying, If you love each other so much that it makes up for all of the Dumb stuff you're going to do to each other, you'll be good. So do that. Love each other. Love each other. And let it cover those things. And part of the reason why we lose perspective and what we do is we forget about the fact that what we have here is so good. We're so used to living, I honestly think we're so used to living in a country and in a time where there are so many options for church and there are so many churches and ways to worship and, 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 and ways to do things exactly the way that maybe we want to do them that any time that we begin to be unhappy and frustrated and difficult and stressed out or whatever, we have a problem with the person sitting next to us. We have a problem in the life group or the growth group or the small group that we're in. We have a problem with the group that we're serving with or the ministry that we're serving with. Our response is just to go, I don't need this. I can find better. And we lose sight of the fact that God has given us this and that it is an incredibly wonderful thing. 
What if you were the only person alive following Jesus? What if there was only one of you and you had to find a way to follow Jesus alone, by yourself? Could you do it? Could you do it alone? What if it was just you and your family and no one else? Could you do that? The other thing that we are is we are grateful. We are grateful to have each other. In this family, in this home, we are grateful that we have each other because there's a lot of people that don't have a family like this, a lot of people that don't have a home and a place like this. And so let's not let, right, the differences between all of us, because there are so many, lead us to grumbling and disputing amongst one another, allowing the enemy to deceive us into thinking, you don't need them. You don't need them. You're right. Do you really need to be around people who are wrong? Wouldn't it be better just to be by yourself even? And there are those who have given up on church entirely even though they seek to follow Jesus because they go, no, I don't want to deal with with any of it, with all of it. He says something very interesting here to the people. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Uh, Most Bible translations will put shine as lights, shine as stars is the name of this passage, the title of this passage, because it's all about what really makes us stand out. But what does he mean when he says a crooked and twisted generation? You go, yeah, oh man, have you seen the world out there? Have you seen what it's like? Talk about crooked and twisted. This whole generation is going off the rails, but we're gonna shine like stars because we're the church. He's not talking about the outside world. He's quoting something that we talked about when we were in Exodus, and it comes out of also Deuteronomy. God tells Moses right before his ministry ends and he dies, God, God gives him a song and he says, Moses, I want you to sing this song to the people and I want, you to, I want you to say this to the people. And here's part of that song. The rock, his word is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. This is in reference to the church to God's people. It's in reference to the Israelites then because God, and this is the crazy thing about God, is that he knows what's going to happen when a group of people get together and he uses them for something. Is they're going to blow it in some way or another. And, but he keeps doing it because he can use anybody. He could use a donkey if he wants to. And so he says, he says to Moses, listen, I've rescued you. I'm here with you. I've provided for you. They're going to serve other gods. They're going to they're gonna go away from me. They're going to forget about all this. I will redeem them. I will save them. I will continue to pursue these people who blow it. But what he's also saying is, and this is the truth, that there are so many 
who say, I follow God, I follow him, I'm one of his people. There are so many in the church who are crooked and depraved, who are not even close to living the way that Jesus actually says to live, but really are living the way that a group of people would live if they just got together and were like, let's figure out how to do this well without Jesus. And so you're the real deal. You are. You're the genuine article. Paul's saying to his church, he's saying, Philippians, if you can live this way, then you will stand out in a way that will blow people's mind. And you know how you'll stand out is you'll just be doing what you say you're about. You'll be following the guy that you say you're following. What is a problem that so many have with the church, and it is a totally legitimate concern or complaint to have? is that there are so many people saying, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus, I follow God, and like in no way doing that. And he says, yeah, the backdrop will be very dark and it will take up a lot of space. And then there will be these points of light, these stars, like in the night sky, these shining lights amidst this crooked and depraved generation. And he says, you can be like that. You can live like that if you do this thing. If you work out your faith with fear and trembling. If you are unified together like this. The last thing that he says is holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He says to people, to hold fast, this translates to fixing your eyes on something. It's not to physically hold it, it's to, it's to keep focused on this thing, and it is the word of life. It is the gospel. It is not talking about specifically just text. It's the gospel. To fix yourself on the gospel, because that's what he's done, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. You could do all of these things, all of it. You could work out your faith. You could try to be loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And you could be being at peace with people and not grumbling and disputing, but be a really harmonious person who listens to others and cares about them and, and all of this stuff. But without fixing your eyes on the gospel, without staying focused on that thing, Above all else, you could do all that stuff and be laboring and working and running in vain. In vain. Paul knows this about himself. He knows all the things about Paul that people love about Paul without the gospel. It's just me working in vain, laboring in vain. And in the end, it won't really matter. If you're here because the Bible sounds reasonable and interesting, because it seems like there's life there. If Jesus himself seems like there's wisdom in him and, and, and both humanity and hope and compassion and our world might be better, your family might be better, you might be better with these principles and these truths and these things we've talked about, but you don't actually follow Jesus but you don't know the hope of the gospel, but you've not given your life to him and said, I have my faith in you, Jesus, and I trust in you, then all of your labor and all your effort and all, and all of that would ultimately be in vain. 
So let's close, and as we worship and as we pray, I want to pray about that specifically. Father, I know with absolute certainty that there are some here today who are familiar with you, who know a lot about you, who see benefit in things about you, and even see the good in living by all of these things we've talked about. But who aren't yet ready to actually fully trust in you, to put their faith in you, and not in themselves, Lord. To actually say, I believe that Jesus is God, that he did live and die for me, that my hope is only found in him and in trusting him with my life, that he is the source of life, and that the only way is to repent of the way that I have lived and who I am and what I have put my hope in up till this point, and to instead wrap all those things around Christ. Father, I pray for anyone here in that place that they would take this opportunity as we sing, as we worship, as we pray to you, God, to ask for your forgiveness, to repent of being turned away from you and to turn towards you instead and to seek to follow Christ with their life. For the rest of us who want to follow and are seeking to but struggle to continually work out our faith, Lord, um, we pray that you through your Holy Spirit would give us the power to do that. This is not a new idea that people have only heard about this for the first time here. The idea of working hard, trying hard, being better is how it can come across in sound. But we know that it's much more than that, Lord. That it is about growing into being who Christ is. That it is about the good news of the gospel and the good news of the gospel is not about what we do, but it is about what has already been done for us. And so our prayer is that as we worship you, as we pray to you, that we would reflect upon all that you have done for us and how we then can live in response to you, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen. Father, we want to be, we want to shine like stars, Lord. We want to be lights in this dark world. We want to be distinct and we want to be different, God. And we recognize that that isn't about being creative and doing exciting and new things and being better than we ever were before. It's about striving to actually live out the things that we say we intend to live out, to actually follow Christ in our actions and our lives, not just in our words. That to do that is to be truly distinct, and we recognize that that most of our arguments and most of our debates and most of our grumblings come from disagreements on how to be distinct, on how to be living for Christ and the right kind of people. And so we pray, Lord, that in our desire to live for you, to be distinct and to shine like stars, that we would be united together, that we would be a family, Lord, that we would be grateful that we have each other and we would be grateful for the gospel that binds us together. It's in your name that we pray, amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.